Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Old Capitol Museum here on the central campus of the university. Very glad to have you all with us. Tonight, we begin a four-part series in which we'll explore climate change and the challenge of sustainability through the complementary languages of science and art. The Crossroads Project is a unique and exciting endeavor that merges art and science in a reflection on the beauty, intricacy, and fragility of our planet. And it's also a call to action. And we're privileged to have a behind-the-scenes look at this collaborative project tonight with its creators. My guests in this segment are members of the Fry Street Quartet. The full quartet will be seen and heard in just a few minutes. Um, but the person who's here with us on stage is Rebecca McFall, violinist. Very nice to have you, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Uh -huh. And uh, Robert Davies is just next to me, physicist and educator at the Utah State University. Thank you for being here, Bob. Rob. Thank you. And Elizabeth Oakes, many people here in our area know Beth Oakes, <coughs> having been with Maya Quartet for many, many years. And she's now the coordinator of the University of Iowa String Quartet Residency Program. And you really are responsible for bringing this project to campus. So thank you, Beth. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the, the first thing we need to do, of course, is define what the Crossroads Project is, how this all kind of came about. I had the chance to see the full performance of the Crossroads Project the other night, as did many uh, here in our area. And it's, a, I think, a very uh, moving and thought-provoking presentation. Rob, would you tell us what it is so people who have not heard of it before can have a better understanding of what we're trying to explain? Sure. It, uh, at its core, it's a, it's a communication project. Uh, and I had spent a, a number of, of years giving public lectures on climate change uh, and then evolving into sustainability science. And what I found was that uh, you can lay down the information quite logically, and the science is quite compelling, and, and an audience will follow it on an intellectual level. Um, but the nature of, of sort of, of of, of human beings and the nature of the risks that are associated with these things are such that it's, it's difficult to perceive them. And so uh, even though these risks are very large and really quite immediate, we, we have a hard time as humans perceiving that. And of course, uh, so I was looking for a way to try to communicate this information a little more viscerally. Mm -hmm. um, and immediately, uh, well, I have sort of powerful experiences with music and in particular chamber music. Uh, the Fry Street Quartet is a resident string quartet at Utah State University, where I am as well. And so I approached the quartet with a notion to try to come up with a, a performance that does that, prevents uh, compelling information and compelling imagery, and then unleashing some very powerful music to give people a sort of a meditative space to, to better internalize and contextualize the information that, that they're hearing. Yeah, and so I, I called it a performance, which I think is what it actually is. You, uh, the quartet plays live, and uh, you as the narrator or the guide through this whole experience, um, uh, 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 what should I say? We're, we're looking at visual, uh, we have a visual experience at the same time that we have this wonderful music being played live. Uh, we have comments you've made before and afterwards, sometimes during these, um, these various elements that, that just, you know, trigger thinking in a brand new direction. It's, I think, a very uh, inspiring and sort of a little hard to describe, as you can tell from, from my <laughs> description. It's a little hard to say exactly what it is. But I think it is very much like life because we don't have isolated individual experiences that are, that are um, completely unique to one discipline. Uh, right? Uh, Rebecca, tell us a little bit about how you feel about this whole project. Oh, um, I'm very close to this project and so thrilled to be a part of it. Um, 
I'll start with just a little bit of history. So Rob approached us with this, with just this notion, uh, the notion he just described. And, um, and I spoke to my colleagues about getting involved somehow. And we all were immediately wishing to do so and wishing to, to find a way to make our, our, our art form relevant to this topic that's, that's touching all of us. And so this was just a really exciting endeavor. And it's become um, a, a sort of grand work that, that Rob has, is, has been the author of, is the author of. But we have, have been contributors um, alongside it. And we have the great fortune of working with other collaborators, too. You'll get to meet Laura Kaminsky in a little while, who wrote the centerpiece um, for the string quartet of this work. And, um, and visual artists as well who've contributed works that, that, um, that are adding a lot to it. But the can our canvas, which has been, you know, the, the genre of the string quartet has been busted open into all of these elements. And we were just talking about how sculpting the whole performance is a little bit like rehearsing a piece of music. You know, we'll, we'll do a rehearsal and think, oh, well, you know, it, there's too many endings. You know, <laughs> we need to streamline this or we need to fade um, move from words to music more poetically so that the, the, um, the audience person can have a through composed experience. Mm -hmm. So it's been fascinating on a lot of levels. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go to some live music here in just a moment, but before that, I'd like to talk to you, Beth, and just ask you how, how you learned about this project and decided this is something we should uh, expose to. Well, I had an outstanding school. contact, which was Rebecca. <laughs> and I remember it actually really vividly. We were. Um, playing chamber music together, and we had a, a moment where we were sharing a meal together, I believe, and Becky said to me, she said, you know, I'm working on this project, and, and I just, she, she was a little tentative about it, approaching me, and she said, I, I wonder what you think, and she started talking about it, and I said, you've got to tell me more about this, this is incredible, <laughs> you know, and I mean, I, I have certain personal biases in this direction, my father's a physicist, so I definitely grew up in a, in a house that was infused with physics, and and sustainability is definitely an important conversation topic in our house, but here we've got the medium of the string quartet, which had been my personal voice for 22 years. And, and so the more she talked about it, the more I just thought, this is a perfect thing for our campus. And especially, you know, as somebody in chamber music who's a collaborator, um, and that's so, so important. When you come to a university campus, all of a sudden you have access to all these disciplines. Mm -hmm. And you're looking for ways to bring them together and to create a sort of larger sense of collaboration. And to me, what this project really embodied was how those collaborative efforts can come together to really try to affect change. So it just seemed like too good an opportunity to miss. And also, Brad Audison, who's the violist, did study here with um, Bill Prusel and the Prusel School, so there was a personal connection here as yeah. well. Terrific. Well, I, I wonder, uh, this would be a good time for us to describe a, uh, this piece you're going to play, how it fits into the overall performance, per perhaps, and then uh, we'll invite your colleagues to come up and, and hear a bit. Wonderful. We're, we're, we'd like to perform the first movement of Laura Kaminsky's string quartet called Rising Tide. And the first movement is entitled The Source of Life, and it is the, the meditative space for the water segment of the work. Okay. Wonderful, great. So as they all get assembled here, I'll just repeat that the uh, composer's name is Laura Kaminsky, and we'll meet her in an upcoming uh, segment. And so this is part of Rising Tide, and you'll be listening to the Fry Street Quartet.
Oh, thank you very much. Absolutely wonderful. And I want to uh, read the names of everyone who's uh, part of the Fry Street Quartet. You have already met, uh, met Rebecca uh, McFall, who's here with us on stage, violinist. But you also heard Robert Waters, violin, and uh, Bradley Ottison, viola, and Anne Francis Bayless, cello. And we look forward to the next segment, where I know you'll be playing again. So, you know, for, for me anyway, the music stands beautifully, independently, on its Absolutely. own, and, you know, thoughts may take you in one direction or another. But then, as an integrated part of this larger work, the Crossroads Project, let me go back to you, um, physicist and creator of this whole project. What does it mean to you when you hear this piece played? You know, that's a, I'd have to think about that. Specifically, well, this brings just to mind so many uh, performances that we've given and the different reactions that we've had, but the, I think the you know, the, the structure of the performance is a series of vignettes. Um, if the premise is that we have really great sustainability problems, um, challenges that really carry with them very large risks, uh, certainly uh, both for our generation and very certainly for the next generation, the, that is sort of conveyed and explored in this performance by looking at first the way that natural systems work. And we've got that arranged in water and light and food, what we call forage, um, in those series of vignettes, so information and imagery, uh, after which then you sort of unleash the music on it. And, and um, so this is very early on in the performance when I, you just, for me, it just conjures up these big notions of, uh, of wonder of the natural world. And it's, it's been preceded by some very interesting information, I, I think, I hope, mm. about water and some, some quite beautiful images. Later on, that gets contrasted with human systems and why it is we're, we're in this uh, predicament that we're in. And it's uh, the premise of the performance is that you contrast how human systems work with natural systems and you find they're almost entirely antithetical. We, we do everything opposite to the way nature likes to do it. 
And so this is very early in the performance when it's very wondrous and wonderful, and later in the performance, uh, the final uh, vignette is called Societus, and that's a, that's a much heavier piece with maybe a little bit more violence, a little bit more uh, um, uh, argument in it. <laughs> well, I, I said earlier that in, in a way the piece impresses me as kind of a call to action. And um, what reaction do you get from audiences that, that hear the whole presentation and, and you know, are confronted by not only the beauty and wonder of the natural world, but then you know, the the pickle we've gotten ourselves into. What, <laughs> you've, you've done this piece in Brazil, you've done it in, in other international locations, and you've done it here many places in the States. What kinds of reactions do you hear from audience members? Well, certainly there's a spectrum, uh, but, but broadly, I think it's very powerful. It's not entirely pleasant. Uh, it's not really entertainment. We kind of call it performance science and, and performance art. Um, but we get very powerful reactions, contemplative. Often audiences coming right out of the experience, I think, don't, aren't quite ready to discuss what they think. They're not quite sure what you feel. Um, and of course, ultimately, the, the intention is to provoke a, a meaningful response to these issues. And whether or not that happens is, remains to be seen. You have to see how long it sticks with uh, someone. But, but the initial reactions right, coming right out of a, of a, of a performance are typically, typically quite quite strong. I don't know if Rebecca and Elizabeth want to. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, you know, I'll just speak from my own personal experience as um, somebody who went, my entire family went, and, and also we've had the privilege of having these guys on campus for a week so that we could, we did Crossroads early in the um, week intentionally so that we could kind of follow people's journey post-Crossroads and see what their experiences were. And I, one theme I am seeing, and certainly was my experience and, and definitely my daughter's experience as well, is that and I, I think it's partly by the design. It's a very emotional experience, and so it penetrates you on a very deep level, and in some ways it's hard to articulate. Yeah. And I think that's part of the power of it, actually, is that you've, you've accessed instead of just the intellectual side of it, where it's easy to kind of talk about it and um, have a conversation, you've triggered something much deeper. And so for us, we all kind of came, we came home and we, we decided on a family meeting. We're gonna have a family meeting after we've sat with us for a little while, and we're gonna make some changes and we're all gonna discuss what they are individually and also as a family. And so I thought, well, that was our own personal experience. I'm, I'm not sure what other people felt. And then I've gone into actually the classroom and a number of people have said the same thing. Like they are sitting with that information, there are conversations that are happening, everybody's digesting. I think that is the beauty in terms of how you guys have created this and also, Rob, your, the way you sort of present the call to action at the end, which you might wanna just mm -hmm. talk about. Because I think that really, it gives individuals a, a space to think about what his or her own reaction is going mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. And you don't have an easy answer, and I, they, they're not easy problems to solve. Mm -hmm. But you create a space that we really think about it on a very, very deep level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, could you, exp uh, could you tell us how you kind of wrap it up? What, what is the charge you, you leave the audience with? Well, so uh, certainly we lay out the, uh, the litany of, of, uh, of ills with our modern societal systems, and we organize it. And, systems of food and energy and economy and how each on their own are unsustainable. Um, and often when you talk about particularly climate change, it's the, the thinking is that, well, this is about changing our energy system. It's about changing our technology. And, and when you look at the people who really study this uh, and model it, um, it's not really about our technology. We, we have the knowledge and the technology we, we need to address these issues. What, what we are lacking is the social technology 
a way to sort of move ourselves uh, into a, a new path. And that's really about two things. It's about changing whole systems, uh, and not individually, but all together. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower had a great quote, which I'm going to uh, do a little bit of violence to. But basically, it said, if the problem is too big to be solved, make it bigger. And, um, and the idea is that in order to make the changes we need, we really need to make it at a full systems level, uh, all of our society at once. And it's not the technology so much, it's our approach to uh, our lives. Um, and this hyper-consumption that, that we've only recently fallen into. Um, you know, we know we can live very happily without this because we have in the past. In fact, you know, there's a piece of information in the performance that is, over the last 50 years, we've doubled our consumption uh, and our happiness by, by just about every measure that they track these things has gone down. So the final, uh, the final segment in the epilogue, we talk about this notion that it's very much about turning inward to ourselves and reassessing what we think of as happiness and what we think of as success, uh, and then turning that outward to reform our societal systems to reflect that. Because right now, our societal systems, I think, don't reflect who we really see ourselves to be. And we often don't notice that. Uh, and that's so what the performance does, and certainly what the music does, is the performance kind of brings in that message, and the music, I think, quite amplifies that, that, that uh, feeling that, that people have. Well, I couldn't be more grateful to have you all, all here for this program, to meet you all, and um, to have enjoyed some of your residency myself. And, um, and many people who see this show, I'm sure, will, will uh, learn a lot from what they'll be hearing and what they've heard in this segment. So thank you so much, Rebecca McFall, Beth Oaks, and Rob Davies, also members of the Fry Street Quartet. Um, we hope you can stay with us for uh, the next segment in this uh, program in which we'll meet the composer of this wonderful music, Laura Kaminsky, and have another uh, live performance. And uh, so uh, that's it for this segment. I'm Joan Kerr. This is World Canvas for International Programs. All World Canvas programs are available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV and also the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. So thanks for being here with us, and good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're broadcasting from the beautiful Senate chamber of the Old Capitol Museum in Iowa City. This is part two of a four-part series on climate change and the challenge of sustainability, viewed through the complementary languages of science and art. In the first part of this series, we introduced you to the Crossroads Project and a unique and evocative endeavor that emerges art and science in a reflection on the beauty, intricacy, and fragility of our planet. In this segment, we'll continue to explore the Crossroads Project, and I've invited the composer whose original music is an integral part of the experience to join us. Our focus will be on the unique but complementary languages, as I've already mentioned, of science and art. If you didn't get that in the first segment, you'll certainly get it in this one. Um, so next to me here is composer Laura Kaminsky, and uh, next to her is Beth Oakes uh, from our own university, who's the head of the University of Iowa String uh, Quartet Residency Program. And at the far end, our guest is a member of the Fry Street Quartet, Robert Waters, violinist. Very nice to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, I think that I will turn to you, Laura, first. I want to talk to you, of course, about the music that you've written and about your musical career, composition in general. But uh, this project, this kind of comprehensive project uh, related to climate change, sustainability, all these kinds of things, how did it come to you? How did you find yourself involved in this? 
Well, I think I have to give some credit to my friend here, Beth Oakes, who actually connected me with the Fry Street Quartet, who I had not known. Um, but Beth and I had met in New York at a conference, and we began a conversation about artist activism and commitment to extra musical, extra artistic concerns. And she tucked that away in her mind, and she's friends with the quartet. And I think when um, they began talking about developing this project and had the realization that it needed its own music specific for the project, they reached out to people they respected and trusted and asked Beth, do you have somebody in mind? And she suggested me, and I'm thrilled, so thank you. So it was yeah. really good fortune all around. Oh my gosh. Well, so Beth, and the question comes back to you. How, how did you see Laura as fitting particularly well into this project? Well, and I have to say that it was actually a number of us that sort of got passed the information along to them, but you know, I, I served on a panel with Laura at um, Chamber Music America, and Laura just, I was blown away by her. I, just the way she approaches her art, and art as activism, art as a reflection of the world. She is one of the most articulate and thoughtful people I've ever met. And so her name is, certainly came up many times in the Maya Quartet rehearsals as somebody who was, I really, really admired. And, and so I was thrilled when Becky mentioned that Laura was gonna be part of this project to have this opportunity to work with her and this, this guys. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, just maybe this is kind of a technical question, but was there a point during the composition of these various pieces where you and the quartet all sat together to kind of work some things out? Indeed. Well, uh, the, the project began long distance where the quartet is in Utah and, the, um, and Laura lives in New York, and so there were some conversations just about the basic structure of how the, the project was, the performance was going to unfold in the specific themes within that, the four segments to the, to the piece that Laura wrote around water, around uh, life, around food, and then around human society. And that was pretty much all you had to go on, other than the notion that we also wanted music that would function both as a part of this bigger structure of the Crossroads Project performance and also as a concert piece on its own, which is a rather unusual set of instructions <laughs> for a commission. Uh, and so th then I, uh, uh, Laura bent, went about her work and finished a, a draft, and we met perhaps hmm, six to eight weeks before the premiere. We gathered in Connecticut to, to workshop the piece, and it was, it, was, it was just an absolutely fantastic experience, I think, all around, just, just the give and take and, and the, the search for really exactly what we were trying to express, whether it was one a given articulation on one note or how something related to another point later in the piece, that it was just always a wonderful, um, a wonderful sense of growth and, and birth for the project. Yeah, and so when you when you conceived the piece, you you finished it. Now, if we look at the finished piece, um, how do you feel it works as a standalone concert piece? Um, as compared to the way it fits into this Crossroads performance? Well, I have to say it's, it's interesting to hear it in both contexts, and I think it actually does function as a concert piece, um, and that was a challenge that I gave to myself, which is there are certain expectations about string quartet writing and multi-movement string quartet works, and I wanted to respect and honor those in creating this piece, and at the same time wanting to honor Rob's concept for the overarching structure of the Crossroads Project. So I had to find a way into that, and it actually was perfect that he decided to do the food movement, the forage movement, as the third movement, 
because the minute he talked to me about his concept of, you know, all of the ways in which food is gathered and how people need food, and I had this image of scurrying about, you know, squirrels running and getting their nuts and fish, you know. So it was, to me, that had to be the fast movement, so it was perfect that it was the third segment of the piece. But I think what I, what I do want to get back to is something that Robert just um, touched on, which is that that first meeting was, it's always very scary. Because, you know, <laughs> I, I sort of think I'm done with my work, but of course I know I'm really not. And what was so fantastic about gathering with the quartet, and also Rob was there, and the painter, Rebecca Allen, came, and you, were, you spent most of the day reading through the music and rehearsing it, and I don't remember how many changes were made, but like when things just didn't quite work and you weren't, it didn't feel natural. It, we got into those really little details that yeah. seem so small, but it's, it's kind of like if you're writing a sentence, do you want a period or a semicolon? How do you connect it? You know, it, it's the same thing in music, it's a language. And we really sort of walked our way or you know, played our way through the piece and the, the collaboration, the discourse about all of that was fabulous. And Rob and Rebecca and Rebecca McFall's family, whose house we were using for this se session, would just kind of poke their heads in and be part <laughs> of the dialogue. And I felt like it really was this whole universe which was giving birth to, to the quartet. It was really spectacular. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I know we're going to be hearing a segment. Is it this forage segment that you're going to be playing? Indeed. Oh, wonderful. I wonder if we should just go to that now that we've spoken about it for a moment. Perfect. So as the quartet gets ready, is there anything more you'd like to say? You described the scurrying squirrels and whatnot. Anything else we should know about this uh, movement before the beginning? Uh, well, it's, it's the fastest and shortest movement of the piece. Um, and I don't think there's anything much more that, they need, that the audience needs to know musically about it. Um, mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that was really interesting as they were getting set up was as Rob was was changing his spoken, his soliloquies, I call them soliloquies. Um, then the issue of what are the images that get projected, because there was a progression throughout the piece of factual scientific evidence, often with charts and graphs, leading to photographs, leading to abstract painting, leading to music. And I always feel that that was such a thoughtful way to construct the whole piece, that it goes from the most precise to the most abstract, but it's all on a continuum each time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. So, so this uh, movement is called Forage. Forage, and it's from the larger work Rising Tide by Laura Kaminsky. <laughs>
thank you so much. So that was the movement Forage from Rising Tide by Laura Kaminsky. We heard the Fry Street Quartet, and members of the ensemble are Robert Waters here on stage with his violin, Rebecca McFall violin, and Francis Bayless cello, and Bradley Otteson viola. Uh, please, let's give them another hand. This is just wonderful. <laughs> That's right, and not to be outdone, the composer Laura Kaminsky. Wow. Um, so, so much to say here, but one thing that occurs to me as I see you all playing. Now, I know that, Laura, when you came into the piece, you knew that you would be working with a quartet. But doesn't it seem that a quartet is kind of exactly the right metaphor for the sort of interlinked um, thing this whole Crossroads project is? Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny that that's what you brought up, because yeah. if I was going to say anything more, that's yeah. probably uh. what I would want to talk about, which is that, first of all, I mean, you can't surpass a string quartet as, as the perfect ensemble, um, the, the sound, the, the history, everything about string quartet is just so yeah. compelling for me as a composer. But what's so perfect about this is from the lowest note of the cello to the very highest possible, I guess, harmonic that can be played uh, on the high string of the violin is, is the, probably the full range of, of utterance that, that the natural world can make. So already there, you've got this incredibly rich array, but it's all one sound on a continuum, so it's fantastic. Yeah. But the other thing that's so powerful about it, and, and I think this is my chance to say how fantastic it is to work with these particular musicians, is the commitment, the, the collaboration, the negotiation, the, the trust, and the respect. It's, it's a perfect metaphor for an ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. So what do you have to say to that, Bob? Well, the, you, truer words were never spoke more uh, spoken. It's, uh, as an ecosystem that where independence, interdependence, and trust are, are of, of paramount, we, we certainly find that in any of the multitude of musical decisions that are made on a minute-by-minute -minute basis in our rehearsals, and even in, in um, live performance, there needs to be um, a sense of empathy for the struggles of somebody's individual part as they're having to go, there, there needs to be a sense of both strong leadership and yet, um, and, and yet a very open vision and an open sense of listening for um, what other people are saying or what other people are playing. And the moment that somebody kind of checks out, um, the whole thing collapses. And so if somebody isn't kind of living up to their presence and their commitment to the group, it kind of doesn't matter if the, the rest of the, the, th the other threes are e redoubling their efforts. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't work at all. Yeah. And it's instantly apparent, not only to the quartet, but to everyone available. And this used to actually be a pretty, uh, a, a, a very uh, integral and outspoken component of the Crossroads project. This, this, our, our, this project has had many different iterations. And one of the things that's been a challenge for us is to, is to decide what is most important to say and what is most important to communicate and what things we need to leave for another day. Mm -hmm. And so this is in the, in the, in the interim then, since the, it was first conceived, become more of a subtext and less of something that's, that's truly out in front. But it's, it's definitely there for us on a daily basis, the sense of the quartet as an ecosystem that needs balance, that needs complete commitment from everyone at all times. Mm -hmm. Well, and Beth, I'm so grateful that you, you 
Broadfoot Quartet and Laurie here for, for all, and Rob for all of these uh, very intimate presentations because for me anyway as a listener and as an audience member watching the um, eyes dart back and forth between the players is, is just you know incredibly interesting. You know that there's communication going on there and they everyone is anticipating that next moment from the other player. If as you say it didn't happen as it was supposed to. It would be it would be a big big problem. So it's so exciting to see it, um, uh, to see you all play here with us. It's just wonderful. So what are the other works that you're sort of um, most involved in in your life? Either things you've already completed or work that you're well. Uh, I, I have now. to say that this first collaboration with the Five Street Quartet has just been so incredibly rewarding and and exciting for me. And it's it's. You know this issue of trust. I mean, you get so vulnerable in doing this kind of work that even though we haven't spent huge amounts of time together and we haven't shared hundreds of experiences, I feel very intimately connected to these four artists. And so, I'm actually now um, writing another piece that that they will be featured in. Um, it's a chamber opera that is for two singers and string quartet and film. And it, the two, it's a very intimate piece, actually, because this quartet is you know, very tightly knit. The two singers are married in real life, and they, in the course of the opera, they're playing one character. It's the story of a transgender person's self journey to self-actualization. And so this married couple, Sasha Cook and Kelly Markroff, are playing the one character on this journey and with the string quartet, with the fly quartet and, and an interactive film. And I'm writing it furiously in between every single um, wonderful engagement I've had with the community here in Iowa. I'm back in my room working on another <laughs> scene because we're going to start workshopping it this summer and it's going to premiere at Brooklyn Academy of Music at BAM in September. Wow. So I'm Fantastic. excited to have another opportunity to work with the oh, quartet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, that sounds wonderful. Well, Beth, so you have been sharing um, uh, all of these good folks with various departments around right. campus with your own students who are, uh, you know, performers. Right. Um, what uh, What happens in the master classes that you you've um, Put together. Well, you know, it's, it's an amazing experience, actually. I always tell people I have the best job in the world because I get to follow these quartets around for the entire week. I get to see everything. I have the best seat in the house. And, and what is so remarkable is that, that how talented these people are, <laughs> that they go in and they can give a lesson and give feedback on how to get a better spiccato, get the bow to bounce better. They can work with a string quartet on Ravel and get their pizzicato or plucking of the string, you know, 15 different colors as opposed to one. They can um, sit and talk to some of the students that I'll be taking out throughout Iowa on Messian's Quartet for the End of Time and give them really insightful thoughts about um, really connected to Messian through their own experiences with um, different faculty in their own training. And then also work with our students on um, developing educational programs for kids. And then go in and ha at a seminar on human rights and have a really thoughtful, <laughs> provoking conversation about environmentalism and art as activism. And then sit down and play. You know? it's, just, it's really, I mean, it's truly the, the renaissance person in, in my mind. And, and so I, it's just been a real, I think also for me, as somebody who, who sees art as an incredibly powerful medium, it's something that is important to me to communicate to our students. You know, it, art can be a very lonely thing, especially when you're a musician or a composer. You used to spend a lot of time on your own practicing your craft. And to figure out how art relates to our society and also the power it can have to transform 
if we spend all our time alone, we don't really experience that. And there is certainly the experience of giving a concert. But this is a really kind of magnified experience for our students to participate in as an audience member, to get to know the quartet, to trust them also, and to be taken on this journey to see the power of their craft that they're developing. It's, it's remarkable. We're incredibly fortunate in this community to have this program here to give us access to this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and I know that you had strong partnerships with the Office of Sustainability yes. and also I, Public Health. Shout out. I just have to yeah. say, when I, this thing first came into um, my, across my radar, the first place I went actually was to the Office of Sustainability and met with Liz Christensen and then subsequently with George McCrory and said, you know, what do you think? And they were on board right away. And that, that again, it's collaboration. It was so exciting to feel that energy in the room. And then um, Liz had the fabulous suggestion as we were looking for venues, challenging post-flood for us, that could meet the acoustic needs, but also the, the speaking needs and the visual needs. We then worked with the College of Public Health, which has this fabulous Leeds Platinum building, which reinforces the message that the, this group was wanting to communicate. So it, we had incredible partners in this whole experience. Well, as, as we begin to wrap up, um, during the, the complete performance that you gave on Tuesday, you began with Haydn, you ended with Janacek, and Laura's wonderful music was, was in the middle. That's, that's very interesting to me. How, I, I should have asked Rob when he was up here, but perhaps all of you, any of you, can tell me how it happened that the Haydn kicked us off and the uh, Janacek finished well, it up. The Haydn for, for a string quartet is really, um, it represents the birth of the string quartet and, and the father of the string quartet and all the great masters who came after him, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, Bartok, you name it, they all paid very consciously great homage to Haydn. And so uh, to start off such an incredible journey, it seemed really appropriate for all, all kinds of reasons to begin with, with the great master who, who, who we owe this incredible debt to. And um, we spoke about the, the need for this new piece that, that Laura so wonderfully gave us. And Janacek at the end was, was, was in some ways the most difficult uh, piece to choose because there were a number of both emotional and practical considerations to make. On the one hand, it couldn't be terribly long because we didn't want the overall performance to be long. And we certainly didn't want the very end to be just some epic, huge mm -hmm. thing to make people sit through. And on, on another hand, we were quite um, focused on the particular way that we wanted to leave the audience and the emotional state we wanted to leave them in. Um, We've spoken about this a lot, that there's so many wonderful, really, truly fabulous documentaries and films on sustainability of one sort or another, or just some very difficult problem that's, that's uh, existing somewhere in the world. And these documentaries, about two-thirds of the way, the two-thirds through, you're experiencing just this incredible, difficult material and all the problems and all the tragedy that comes from up. And then the last third, the happy music comes in, and there's, there's a ray of hope, and there are people who are working on it, and the documentary ends with this sort of uplifting feeling, which for us, kind of, were we to do that, we would feel that we would be letting our audience off the hook. That actually, when it comes to these issues, and one of our big um, points is that we're all complicit in what's going on in the world here, and the more that we ignore it, um, the worse it's going to get. And, and so we wanted to leave people really with a feeling of responsibility and, and, and a powerful sense of, of um, well, a compelling, a compelling to, of action. And so the Janacek is, is, is a rather dark, dark movement that we play. In fact, it's, it's 
I won't go through the whole story, but there's an actual merger that happens uh, in, the, in, in the plot, as it were, of the last movement of, of this Yamatek that we chose. Uh, and on a certain level, there's a murder in, in going on as we speak of, of our wonderful planet. And it's happening somewhat more in slow motion than perhaps it does in the, in the novella, the Kreutzer Sonata. But um, it, it, it seemed very appropriate, actually, to send people off with a, a real emotional right hook. Yeah, yeah, well, and you did, and um, uh, it's such a pleasure to have you all here. I wish you could talk much, much longer. Uh, Robert Waters, so nice to meet you and have you here. Beth Oaks and Laura Kaminsky, thank you so much, all of you, for sharing your work with us, and, and best of luck. Um, so that is the end of the second segment of this four-part series on climate change and sustainability and the health of our planet. I hope you can join us for the next segment. Um, World Campus Programming is available on YouTube, on iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, and that's international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Karen. We're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum here in the central campus of the university. The focus of this World Canvas series is climate change and the long-term health of our planet and ourselves. In this segment, we'll address climate issues, sustainability, and conservation as they relate particularly to Iowa. I'm excited to introduce our uh, two guests in this segment. Just next to me is Barry Butler who is the Executive Vice President and Provost of the University of Iowa, also a professor in the College of Engineering. Thank you for being here, Barry. Thank you for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. And next to him is Bob Libra. Great to see you, Bob. Bob is the State Geologist at the State of Iowa, and um, pleasure to have you here tonight. And it's, a, it's an honor to be here. Thank well, you. Thank you so much. So we have a lot to talk about. I think you both had a chance to hear the earlier segments mm -hmm. of the program. And obviously, we're talking about sustainability, um, how we keep our planet alive, how we do the very best we can for ourselves so that we don't, uh, you know, cause unnecessary um, uh, health problems for ourselves, our children, and so on and so forth. So in this segment, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about um, not only some of the challenges we face, but also perhaps some positive things that we can, that we can uh, send out there into the atmosphere, uh, things we might build on in the future. And um, Bob, I'd like to go to you first to talk a little bit about water resources here in the state. Um, you know, as, as a geologist, you have access to comprehensive data going, you know, generations back, I guess, on temperature changes, on water levels in the water table, all these kinds of things. Um, what is the picture right now in Iowa in terms of general health of our, of our environment? <clears throat> yeah, you can, you can always look at the water thing as, as kind of two pieces. You yeah. shouldn't separate them, but you almost have to describe them that way. There's, yeah. there's how much have we got and how good is it. Yeah. So the quality right. and quantity kind right. of ends. Um, and if you, if you look at uh, the water that's near the surface, so shallow groundwater streams, um, that's the stuff that anything that human society does and doesn't do very carefully can be contaminated. And it's, it's also the water that is the most at risk from um, any changes in climate. So it's drought susceptible and it will flood you, you know, depending on, depending on which, which cycle you're in. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and we have deeper, deeper groundwater supplies that really don't care what's going on at the surface. The water's tens of thousands of years old, but it's also not being replaced. Mm -hmm. So you have long-term kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. um, 
we have at least, I will say, in the last five or 10 years, started taking a much better look at that water quantity end. We have a long ways to go, but, but there is a, has been a better start to go. This, this is where we're heading into the future, and it, yeah. it, it looks good here, not so good here, mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. Quality, we've got a lot further to, to deal yeah. with. And the quality issue, is that related to the application of um, chemicals on the surface of the land? We, two-thirds of, uh, of Iowa's land is, is in uh, a corn and soybean rotation. So the act of plowing, uh, the act of fertilizing, the kinds of chemicals that go on it, the fact that that crop isn't there taking up water and holding the soil much of the year, they're kind of short-season crops. That really is the biggest issue, just, you know, one farm, no big deal. Two thirds of the state—that's our—that's our major impact here and here and across the Corn Belt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, thinking of geological time, would would you say that climate change, what's happening right now, what people are observing now, um, is is it happening faster than would be a geological norm? Um, everything we know says so, but it's really—it's hard to get that specific yeah. if you're looking back twenty thousand years and going, well, how fast did it did it do it? Uh, the more high resolution measurements you can take on, on cores of ice from the, from the Arctic or the stalactites in caves and go boing, 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 boing and, and try to look in, in more detail, um, tells us things did, could at times happen fast in the past. But we, we really don't have the, the resolution. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, nothing in the record we have looks like this. Mm -hmm. That's what we can say. So what would you say you personally feel is kind of the biggest challenge we have right here related to our, our you know, natural environment? Um, I think the, the biggest challenge Iowa faces is um, it, it probably is related to the, the water issues and probably more with quality than quantity. Um, quantity can be, from a pure natural resource point of view, can be managed a bit better and, and uh, society here will accept it better than it is, than the quantity, the quality yeah, side yeah. is. Um, we had a big drought the last two years. We were running into big problems in places. And it's not because the drought was worse than it was in the past, but it's how we have changed our dependence on water to concentrate it. And we have to have a lot of water from these shallow, drought-susceptible sources, and it wasn't there. And we just barely got by, even though it was not the deepest drought that has happened in the state. Uh, so, but that's a manageable thing. Quality, that's the bread and butter of the state, that's row crop agriculture, that's a harder one to, to get people to, to go forward with mm -hmm. and fix. Mm -hmm. and, and recommendations for fixing it would be what? Well, the state is trying to start to work on a, a nutrient strategy to cut, cut the nitrogen mm -hmm. and the phosphorus that are, that are the, really the biggest actors in this. Mm -hmm. um, it probably needs a lot more money behind mm -hmm. it, it probably needs a lot more oomph, mm -hmm. but it is uh, at least a step that is starting that will start to, start to move us in that direction. Well, then just one more question. As we're talking about sort of the larger environment around us and the fact that Iowa's right next to the Mississippi and we contribute water runoff mm -hmm. into the Mississippi and we hear about problems in the Delta and so on, um, uh, is, is this a problem that you recognize and that you, it's one of the, it's one of the, um, things we can point to when we say Iowa really as a state would be wise to, um, you know, adopt some more comprehensive policies that could limit that amount of, of uh, agricultural runoff. Um, yeah, and, 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 and that really is the link back to a lot of this nutrient strategy is 
uh, the impacts on the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, the, the concept that Iowa should reduce the amount of uh, the, the nutrients in the water by about 45%. Now you start looking at how you do 45%, and the conversation gets very quiet then, and yeah. people are, it's, sure. it kind of slows things down because that's a lot. So I, I would imagine that that suggests different kinds of crops, perhaps, that farmers might be thinking of different things to plant or certainly different ways to plant them? Um, they are mostly thinking about just different ways to manage the yeah. corn and soybeans. Yeah. That's what they're used to. That's what the equipment is set up for. That's mm -hmm. what they're good at. Mm -hmm. They don't like to change too much from that. Sure, sure. Well, uh, so Barry, let me turn to you a little bit. Sure. You, you're an engineering professor, and I'm, I'm sure that you know, the scope of your interest is quite wide, but I know that wind energy is something that you've been involved in for a long time, wind power, wind resources, and particularly here in Iowa, we're kind of blessed with um, um, strong winds. Does that help us as we... Ab absolutely. Yeah. The, the, you heard Bob refer to the corn belt. Well, we also live in the <laughs> wind belt, yeah. and that's a, that's a region of the country that pretty much is defined as from the uh, Minnesota-Canadian border um, down through the central part, central plains, into the uh, panhandle of Texas. And it, you know your geography, Iowa sits right in the middle right. of that, and we actually have some, uh, some of the best wind in the country when it comes to um, a combination of not just the wind resource, but as Bob is defining, the land. The yeah. land is, is uh, fairly flat, and, and those things combined create a, at least a resource, wind, that, uh, that has been harnessed um, over the over the years mm -hmm. in, in many different ways, and most recently in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, and give us a little history on that. How, how, uh, how has wind energy as a resource we might kind of bank on in the future, how has that developed over this last couple of decades? Sure. Um, well, actually, I'd go before, back before that. I'd go back to the early 1900s. If you, if you think about, you know, your grandparents' mm -hmm. farm or, or looking out in the Iowa landscape, perhaps in the um, early 1900s, mid-1900s, a lot of farms relied on the, the small, what are, what are referred to as wheeler-type turbines to pump water, for example, for the cattle. Um, you used to see them at the uh, train stops. You'd see them for pumping water up into the uh, tanks so they could fill the steam engines. And so that era, um, and if you think about Iowa landscape, you, you do associate that with rural landscapes. Mm -hmm. And um, they weren't used to produce electricity. It was primarily for doing other functions. Uh, the word mill, of course, for milling things, and, and that goes back actually to... 1,500 years probably, five or 600 A.D. But uh, it really picked up in the last um, two decades, mm -hmm. I'd say, decade and a half. Mm -hmm. And that's when um, Iowa recognized um, the uh, resource, the natural resource, the wind, um, something that we often complain about when we're outside <laughs> in a day and it's a little too windy, but it's a, it's a resource because of our geography, because of where we're located on the, on the surface of the earth that uh, provides us with uh, energy that we can extract um, and use, in this case now, to produce electricity. And so Iowa has taken a lead in the country in this. Um, we have um, got all the uh, pieces together, let's just say, to make it work. Um, we also have the natural resources, I said. And, and so if you look at Iowa today, we're, we're, we're producing about 25% of our electricity is coming from wind. Yeah. It surprises a lot of people. We're the number one in the country. Um, and. Um, in terms of total capacity, we're third only behind Texas, uh, which is really a leader, in the, not just in the U.S., but in the world. Um, in California, we seem to fight with California on and off from, from year to year, but that's a good fight because, uh, because uh, they, they're very progressive in wind as well. But Iowa is, uh, is regarded around the world as a, as a place that's um, really harnessed the wind. 
Yeah, and, and am I right to assume that wind energy, the way we're capturing it, is kind of clean energy? Uh, yes, I mean, it, all forms of energy, there, there's always some uh, environmental issues to deal with, and of course they vary. In some cases they're very small, in some cases they're, they're very large, as we know. Um, wind in general, there, there, there are issues, but really minimal when it comes right down to it. We heard a conversation about water just a few minutes ago, and, and uh, many um, cycle uh, devices for producing energy, whether it's coal-fired, nuclear power, or whatever, uh, do consume a lot of water, and people don't think about that. Uh, wind does not, of course. Mm -hmm. It's uh, zero, mm -hmm. fundamentally. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I guess in the water that the, the um, operations guys drink when they're up there fixing <laughs> it, but, uh, but really zero, zero mm -hmm. consumption. And that's something that people don't think about too much, yeah. but it is actually a pretty significant issue. Mm -hmm. um, so in general, very clean. Um, you know, I, I think if you look back into the 1980s when wind really started taking off, commercial wind or large-scale wind in California, uh, there were a number of issues there that people just didn't think about um, where they were located, uh, issues with, with migratory uh, avian species, birds and that. And, and, and like anything, you, you, you learn over time. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the, the projects that are going in now, they do environmental assessments. That's mm -hmm. part of the engineering work that has to be done. They look at wetlands to make sure they're you know, located in the right place. So there's a number of things that have to be done in advance. And uh, you know, I, I personally think it's an extremely clean form yeah. of energy. Yeah. Are your students excited about it when you when you Very much so. I, I teach a couple of courses. I have a freshman seminar for 18-year-olds right out of high school to teach them about wind. Mm -hmm. and, and then I have a graduate level course uh, in engineering that gets a little more technical and uh, really digs into it. But I try to keep those courses, even the, the engineering course, a little broader in terms right. of trying to get them to appreciate more than just the technology, which of course is the focus of this, uh, yeah. this event today. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, we're talking, of course, about art and yeah. science and whatnot. And, and um, you know, if anybody's ever walked through a museum where there are Dutch masters, you see windmills, you see uh, wind energy represented um, somehow, whether wind energy or just, you know, pumping um, sort of uh, operation. But, but how have, in terms of wind, how have the arts represented this over time? Do you know? Uh, well, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, um I got into it because I was, you know, like a lot of people, I was driving along the highway in Iowa, and I just, you know, I found myself staring at these wind turbines, and um, I, I like them. I, you know, I think the slow uh, motion, the uh, the beauty of them, and the landscape, you know, attracts me. And I, you know, you find yourself staring at them and not at the road in front of you, so, <laughs> so it creates a bit of a problem. I think everybody's seen that, but mm -hmm. but you know, so I started looking into some of the history, and and um, of course, as you mentioned, you know, in the 1800s or so, you know, you see some of the Masters, you see Monet, you know, in the yeah. late 1800s, the, a lot of uh, paintings in, uh, in Holland where the, the windmill, that's a du what's called the Dutch style windmill, the traditional one that you're probably familiar with. Uh, those found their way into the landscape in many cases. Um, and it's kind of interesting because uh, it was viewed as, uh, obviously at the time that he viewed it as, and others who painted them viewed it as, a, as an interesting uh, piece of uh, mm -hmm. machinery mm -hmm. fundamentally in the landscape. And you think about that. Uh, you know, going out and, and uh, uh, taking a landscape and putting in some piece of machinery there. Well, it has, it has some beauty to them, I think. And, mm -hmm. and of course, that's proven over time. Those are, those are obviously very uh, yeah. well-regarded paintings. Yeah. Uh, you think of Pablo Picasso and, and, uh, and uh, Don Quixote. You know, you yeah. see the little windmills in, the, and in there. They're just sort of the, the little, little uh, sort of stick figures, actually, yeah. in the background. And so I have my students actually do wind art. I had, ah. And that surprises them. They, I asked them I, the first day of class, they thought they were taking a course on wind energy. They are, but I said, <laughs> I want you to bring to class some piece of art that has wind uh, inspiration. 
And I said, that's it. I'm not going to give you any more guidelines. You go out and find something that you like and come to class and explain to the class why you like it. And you can see the looks on the faces. Of, oh, boy, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> but it is so much fun. I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, they're not going to be able to explain why they like it. They're just going to pull something off the Internet, show mm -hmm. it, and get out of class. That's not the case. It is really fun. I, you know, a young lady just last year showed a sort of old Dutch-style windmills, and to her it reminded her of her grandparents' farm, you know, or something like that. And so it, it really is fun to go through that experience and have them explain why they like it. Yeah, so this whole earlier part of the program, the Crossroads Project and the interdisciplinary and um, uh, intellectual with art, music, and, and whatnot, it makes sense to you. I mean, it, it, really it does, because, you know, in, when you're in technology, which is my background as you introduced me, um, you know, you really do have to appreciate the fact that you're not just making a machine. Um, you know, you, you have to think about how it fits in with society. Do people accept it? Um, can you make it more attractive? Can you do things that allows it to perform a function? And if you think of windmills, you know, the, the word mill originally was to mill. If you go back, it was Persia, and uh, then Persia, now modern-day Iran. But um, in the uh, 500, 600 period, you know, they were milling milling the products mm -hmm. to produce uh, food, mm -hmm. uh, pumping water, doing functions that needed to be done to, uh, to survive. But yet, um, you know, you look at it and you say you want people to appreciate it. And so that's what I'm trying to get across in the yeah. students. Yeah, that's great. Do you, do you have the same sort of feeling when you're out, you know, driving somewhere, you're, you're looking at something related to, uh, we'll just talk about water again. Um, what goes through your head? Is well, you, you, you have water and landscapes. Oh. And, and, and uh, a lot of art is, takes those kinds of things into account. Yeah. And, and it also shows how people relate to the water in the landscapes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's their cities, whether it's their activities. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and if you look at the, the kind of applied, applied geologic, hydrologic science that uh, I've spent a lot of my time doing, mm -hmm. it's what, what are people doing on those landscapes? Yeah. And do they work for what those people are doing? Yeah. Are those people doing bad things to those, mm -hmm. to that water and landscapes? Mm -hmm. And it all goes together. I, I, I was just looking back through some um, uh, old material today from some of the old original state geologist reports back at the turn of the last century, yeah. and um, some of the original old print, you know, and the, 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 the little glass slides. I can't remember what they call them now. They're about this big around, and the drawings they did back then were incredible. And people have tried to find and, you know, locate and get to the same point and go, this is what this looked like in 1894. What does it look like now? Um, so those kinds of, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think, um, as we move forward, I mean, do you feel that, that um, our society or society at large, if we could just dream up what that society is, do you think people are kind of getting it now that... Um, Yes, we want to live comfortable lives. Yes, we're, we're used to many of the things we're used to, and we look for new improvements all the time. But that there is also this responsibility to really think about it um, when we're using energy or not turning off lights or, uh, you know, using water in very, very wasteful ways, even when we know that, that these resources are limited. Um, do you think that those messages are, are getting through in today's world? I do. About if I could start, I do, and I think a lot of it, uh, you know, it, it varies, you know, obviously in terms of the audience. I, we, of course, you know, live on a college campus and we see a lot of students and 
And, um, you know, you do see a lot of it there. It's not 100%, it's not perfect, but you do see a, an appreciation for things that perhaps, um, you know, they might not have had when they came mm -hmm. to school. Mm -hmm. And um, those people are, you know, going off graduating and, and becoming, uh, you know, citizens in their various communities and, uh, and working on different uh, nonprofit boards, whatever it may be, maybe run for city council, maybe do things like that. And so, you know, you, you do like to, to, to think and have the hope that it's there. Um, you know, one of the exercises I do in my first year class is I, I ask them to um, break up into groups of four and they're, they're the city council for small town <laughs> Iowa. Oh, and the nice. city does not have an ordinance about wind energy. And yet there's some people who live in the city who want community who want to put up a windmill and uh, to generate electricity or do something, develop guidelines, develop ordinances. I put them in the position of thinking about it as a leader in a community. And what would they do? Um, what would they say about the aesthetics of it? What would they say about its functionality? Um, and, and then I show them kind of uh, what's out there, which is, uh, it varies all over the map, as you can imagine. So yeah, you try to you know, inspire them to think that way and to think about, uh, think about the energy they're using, uh, the water they're consuming, things like that. It's not perfect, nothing yeah. is, but yeah. you try and you have hope that it'll continue to improve. Well, I love it that you've mentioned the aesthetics of the machine because, because that is such an important part of, of sort of human interaction, um, everything that's around us. You know, most, I think many, many people do. Uh, they do prefer the thing that is more aesthetically pleasing. If, if, you know, if there are two things to look mm -hmm. at, one looks much better yeah. than the other, or is much better yeah. kept than the other. So there's some kind of natural inclination that way, but I don't think I had really thought too much about this before, that when engineers are designing something to accomplish a function, there is also the need to make it somehow appealing. Yeah. Not only work, but make it appealing. Yeah, I, I personally think the Golden Gate Bridge is a lot more attractive than some others that are in the Bay Area, and, yeah. and it's partly because yeah. it's somebody at least took the chance to, or time yeah. to think about it. But um, I also find it interesting when you drive around rural Iowa, there's a lot of these old windmills on the farms that clearly are not functioning anymore, and, uh, and they're still up. Yeah, and right. uh, they're, they're, you know, there's one just right outside of Iowa City that I see every day when I drive by. And, and so I, I can't help but think that people still like to see it in the landscape, even right. though it's not functioning right. in any way. Yeah, right, right. Um, well, so Bob, as, as we uh, come back to your sort of state office of uh, geologist, um, what are the things you work on every day? What, what kinds of issues come to your desk? Um, uh, are, are you involved in sort of planning for these next steps that you were discussing earlier? Or serving as a resource to draw up data from the past? Um, yeah, a, a mix of things, a mix of things. One, one thing we try to do is to, to, to give the science to the, the uh, state entity that allows water to be used. So water in, in Iowa is the wealth of the citizens of the state. You don't, it, you don't own it below your property like a mineral right. It belongs collectively to the people of the state, and the state is charged with allocating it to maximize beneficial use without wasting, mm -hmm. which is a pretty broad, mm -hmm. <laughs> go ahead and do whatever you want with it, right? Yeah. They want people to use it, but not wastefully. Yeah. Um, and so we've been trying to work with good methods to do that, to say if you are developing this water supply, this mm -hmm. volume of water, um, in, in the past we go, well, that looks okay now. You won't be drying up your neighbors. Yeah. Now we're looking at techniques to go, um, 50 years from now, this won't be working. Mm -hmm. Or 20 years from now, it won't be working. 
And many times, if it's a town or a big industry and, and, and they want lots and lots of water, that's a big, that's a big investment. They're counting on it for a long time. Yeah, sure. and, and so if you, if you do it now, you're, you're making a commitment. Uh -huh. That water will be used for a long time. And we are finding ways to predict that whether that will work, whether it won't, whether that means other users will not have access to water because you've, right. you've given this. So, so moving that off into a really the kind of way that drier states have in the past, yeah. because eventually, even Iowa, with only a population of 3 million people, we're get starting to make a large footprint on, on the water demand. Mm -hmm. Wow, so, so water is going to continue to be one of our, our big questions nationally. I mean, we hear about various rivers that, that are, uh, uh, the waters from those rivers being claimed by various states that share that. Exactly, yeah. and, and is very, was making the connection between water and energy yeah. a lot of times. You know, can think of the ethanol plants in Iowa take an awful lot of, of water. Uh, uh, any of the conventional kinds of power plants right. from nuclear to coal to, to natural gas take a lot of mm -hmm. cooling water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's always an intimate connection between, between water and energy yeah. unless we can find new ways. Right, right. Well, and just before we close, um, do you have any thoughts about solar energy? Is it it's uh, getting better and better. The prices are coming down, yeah. the cost to elect to generate, and, and it's a very good sign, actually. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, obviously that's a, a factor you have to take into mm -hmm. account, but if you look at the last few years, it's really going in the right direction. Wow. Yeah, so I, I'm pretty positive. Good, good, good. Well, I couldn't be more grateful that you'd both be here. Barry Butler and Bob Libra, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, segment. And thank you, all of you, for being with us. Um, you're listening to Royal Canvas, and this is the third part of a four-part series on climate change and sustainability and the health of our planet. So join us next time when we'll be taking another further look into Iowa and some of Iowa's challenges. I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks for being with us, and good night. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're in the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. Very happy to have you with us for this final program in our four-part series exploring climate change and the challenge of sustainability. We've been covering a lot of territory in this series, which began with the Crossroads Project and an effort to understand our world through the many lenses of science, art, music, experience. And then we examined Iowa's environmental challenges and energy strengths. And in this final program, we're going to get up close and personal with Iowans here. Um, we know that Iowa has its share of environmental worries, but it also has individuals and communities, businesses that are working together to safeguard our land and our people. Uh, so here to share some insights are David Osterberg, just next to me. Hi, David. Thank Hi you. Hi there. Uh, David Osterberg is a UI clinical professor of occupational and environmental health. Next to him is Chuck Connerly. Hi, Chuck. And uh, Chuck Connerly is the University of Iowa Professor of Urban and Regional Planning. And at the far end is Liz Christensen, the Director of the University of Iowa Office of Sustainability. Thank you for being here, Liz. Honored. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Iowa's future, um, the health of our citizens, the economic and environmental sustainability of the lifestyles most of us enjoy, and uh, creative, Iowans, uh, creative ideas that Iowans are coming up with to protect this part of the planet that we all love so much. Um, I think the overarching question is, what are we doing and what could we be doing better? And in terms of healthy people, healthy planet, let me turn to you, David Osterberg, and ask you to just give us a sense of what's going on in Iowa. Well, the first thing we should do is figure out how we don't put carbon into the atmosphere. There is no question that that is causing climate change, a disruption in the climate. But when you say that, uh, people then start talking about uh, 
retreating glaciers and uh, sea ice that's also retreating. And I don't believe that is the way to lead. I really believe we ought to talk about something very local. And consequently, for the last three uh, falls, there's been a statement out from a number of scientists and researchers at all the universities in Iowa, not just us in Iowa State, but Kirkwood Community College, everybody else. This last one was 155 people, 36 different institutions. I signed it, so did Chuck. Mm -hmm. And what we tried to show that there is an effect already going on in the state of Iowa. And it comes in terms of our agriculture, which is so solar dependent, so energy, so that, that, that depends on that solar energy coming in. And we have to figure out a way that if we don't start changing, we're going to see the consequences. But you want to do that, again, very locally. So after the statement came out, uh, I was a signer, so was somebody from Cornell College. I live in Mount Vernon. So we went to the Mount Vernon Sun, the weekly paper, and put in an op-ed saying, this is what we just said. And uh, University of Iowa professors say it. So do Cornell College professors and Coe and Kirkwood and all of that. And to make this as local as possible. And three years ago, uh, people from the Regents University, so a number of us, looked at what the effects were of climate change on Iowa already. And uh, the reason you have me here is because I was one of the authors of that. Peter Thorne and I talked about the effect that's going to be on human health. And the first thing, most again, most people would think about is that what happens to these extreme heat events when there is just such high temperature that especially the elderly die. Mm -hmm. And that's happened in Chicago in 1995. It happened in France in 2003. Um, Moscow, 2010, but that hasn't happened in Iowa yet. So our lead, Peter and mine, in our chapter was not something you think about direct first when you think about climate change, but the fact that the 2008 floods didn't kill anybody with the large rivers. You usually have time to get everybody out of the way, but once the waters came down, we had all kinds of destroyed housing, also not so destroyed housing. And when people went in there to fix up those houses, they were exposed to so much mold, which then is a health effect. And so you have to kind of describe what climate change might do to human health in Iowa in very particular Iowa terms. Right. Well, uh, how do you respond to someone who says, Look, throughout history, there have been periods of extreme heat. I mean, this is, just, this is just a pattern we're in right now. This doesn't mean that we're having global climate change. What, what's the response to that? Well, it's, it's, first of all, a lot of people just want to deny that, and they're not going to look at very, very much data anyway. But the data is in so many different areas. It's uh, the fact that um, spring comes earlier. And in fact, here's an art piece that if you look back at what Thoreau wrote about yeah. when he found his high bush uh, blueberries coming in, it was in the middle of May. Yeah. It's now the middle of April. Yeah. There is, so you have this picture of what used to be there, and it's not there anymore. And you find ice and snow. You find temperatures warming. You find 
uh, acidification going on in the oceans. And all of it point to the same direction. And so you cannot say this is just going to happen yeah. anyway. It in, it's coming faster, and it's coming with so much evidence from so many different places that if you want to have an open mind, you will agree. But first of all, you have to begin to open that mind. And again, that's why I try to talk about local issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know that you have taken students on a program we have at the University of Iowa, the India Winterim. That's right. Uh, you have taken University of Iowa students for a three-week visit to an entirely different uh, location, environment. And, and tell us something about what you expose those students to. What do they see when they're there? Well, we, we look at sustainability. Mm -hmm. And there's, uh, there's this notion of what's called ecotourism. Yeah. The forest is going to be much more valuable if you leave it so the tigers can be there, that so rich people will come to look at the tigers <laughs> rather than cutting all the trees down. Yeah. Plus, you don't cause all those other kinds of effects. Mm -hmm. So when you find an, another country that's thinking about sustainability, they may not think in the same terms you are, but they're thinking about sustainability. And that's what I think you expose people to uh, internationally. But again, there's got to be some local connection. Mm -hmm. And uh, so our students go there, they come back, and then I think they begin to, again, think about their own society in relation to what they already saw. I mean. When I was in Peace Corps, everybody said, when you come back, you're going to know more about your own society because you've seen a different one and how it works. Right, right, right. Well, thank you. Um, well, let's move down to you, Chuck. Um, you are in urban and regional planning, so you're thinking about systems and livability and um, uh, what's good for a human population, what might have more or less impact on uh, the natural environment and so on. What do you see as Iowa's current state of affairs? I mean, are we, are we as a state as aware as we need to be of? Uh, yeah, we, we talk, actually it's interesting because one of the earlier segments was on the Crossroads Project and we talked about the crossroads that Iowa is facing. Yeah. Uh, and the issues really revolve around the three E's of, uh, of sustainability. Uh, certainly environmental uh, challenges related to climate change and, and related to the water, the way we use water and the way we uh, pollute water through our uh, industrial agriculture. Economic development, many of our towns and cities are losing population in the state of Iowa. Only about one-third of our counties out of our 99 counties are growing uh, in any significance in terms of population. A lot of small towns face uh, declining downtowns as fewer people live. The farms are very productive, but they don't need, they don't have as many people working on them, and therefore fewer people are needed in those towns, so those towns are dying. And then the third issue is related to equity and social justice. As the state becomes, has a more diverse population, we're planning a trip next month out to Storm Lake. I've never been to Storm Lake. It has 29 different ethnic groups uh, in Storm Lake. Uh, and so towns have difficulty adjusting to this. Uh, uh, and uh, they're seeking our advice about how to make certain, how to make certain that they can, that everybody participates in the civic life of, of Storm Lake. So these are really three area three key challenges, and they're overlapping. Just listening um, to Dave talk about ecotourism in, um, in uh, India, we're beginning to see it ourselves. And most people don't think of Iowa as being a tourist state. Uh, but that's in part because we treat our rivers as not, as, as not places where one recreates. We treat them as a place where you dump things. 
Um, and now, increasingly, cities and towns in the state are beginning to see the river as a resource. Charles City, uh, where we have done work over the last couple of years, has taken uh, the water, uh, the river, and made it into a kayak, whitewater kayak park. Who would imagine whitewater kayaking in the state of Iowa? Manchester is planning to follow, as is Iowa City. And as we reclaim these rivers, people are going to say, well, I don't only want to do kayaking there if the water is clean. And so we'll begin to think about the fact that the quality of the water here is very, very important. Mm -hmm. So it will do, by doing that, we'll have an impact on the economy of communities as we attract tourists, but we'll have an impact on the quality of the water as well. Right. Well, and I know that you are heading up a big study, a, a UI and an Iowa, the state of Iowa study, mm -hmm. on sustainable communities and, and um, kind of assessing what people are doing now. You've mentioned a couple of examples. Um, is, is there more you can say about that whole um, assessment you're making? Well, it's, it's, not, it's not really assessment. We're really trying to uh, make a difference. And we're now, as of next year, we'll be in 14, have been in 14 different communities. Hmm. Currently, we're in Musk. This, these are students in urban regional planning and also students in, uh, I think, nine other departments across campus, including public health, where you are, David, uh, engineering, uh, business, social work, uh, journalism. Uh, and. All of these students are working on various aspects of sustainability in these communities. In Muscatine, Iowa, on the Mississippi River, there are urban planning students helping with new ideas for the riverfront park there, again, trying to promote tourism that's based on the water there. We have business students and marketing students that are helping the city of Muscatine develop a marketing plan to convince tourists to come to uh, Muscatine. We have engineering students that are working there on helping uh, develop a new sewer system for a new uh, development that's going to be taking place there. Mm -hmm. We have public health students working with people about proper nutrition and proper diet in connection with the Stays of Blue Zones program. The wonderful thing about the University of Iowa, it, it deals with sustainability in a variety of different ways. And so the, the message that we have for the state of Iowa and all, and all the multiplicity of, of the problems that the state faces with regard to sustainability, we have many of the solutions and many of the ideas that can help these. Mm -hmm. Uh, communities at, at the university. Yeah. And are some of these solutions um, not even terribly expensive? Um, I, I would imagine a lot of people think, oh yeah, that'd be nice, but it's going to cost us a fortune to do it. Are some of these changes that you've suggested have already happened in cities like Charles City? Are, are some of these fairly low investment on the part of the city with high return? So, some, uh, some are low investment. Uh, it, it helps when you get grants as well. Sure. Uh, some will require more investment, but basically what we're looking is for uh, for ways in which people can get around their communities more easily by bicycle and, and walking. And it's, it's not just the cost, it's also the payoff. If people are in better health, mm -hmm. they're in better condition, and they eat better, there are many benefits as well. Yeah, yeah sure. Thank you. Well, so Liz, let's come to you and um, talk about the University of Iowa's efforts here on campus and mm -hmm. ways in which you extend outward. So the Office of Sustainability is what, five, six years old? About five years old. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I this is not the right phrase to use, but you're a real powerhouse there. I mean, you're doing, you're doing uh, lots well, of... Well, we like to think we get things done by pushing or nudging yeah. or yeah. cajoling or encouraging. Sure, sure. And so, um, you know, this is a big institution teaching thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of students. We have thousands of faculty. We, um, you know, are, are an economic uh, engine for this part of the state, but we also produce a lot of waste. We use a lot of electricity and right. a lot of energy and so on. How do you find the the improvements within a big university like this? 
Well, you know, when I started here in 2008, the university already had been undertaking some great things in the, in the realm of sustainability. And what our office did really was to bring all of that work together in, and sort of consolidate or sort of bring it together under the aegis of a sustainability program, a campus sustainability program. And then after I had been here about a year and a half, I sat down with several people in facilities management, my boss, and we decided, you know, the umbrella of, of sustainability is so large, it can encompass virtually every aspect of our lives. And really, what do we need to focus on? And so we came up we, through work with, with staff, with faculty, with students, with not-for-profit organizations, with state agencies, with act, local activist groups. We came up with seven targets to really focus our work on uh, and, to, and set goals to achieve by 2020. And those are in the areas of energy conservation, in renewable energy, in waste diversion, in carbon efficient transportation, in student success and sustainability, in research, and then collaborations and partnerships. And so we're lucky we get to work in all of these areas and we get to work across campus and to work with great people like Chuck and Dave and the provost and Bob Libra and other folks, Beth, Beth Oaks, of course, and um, really sort of make things happen on a, on a broader level, but focusing on those areas. And those first four areas, we really decided we'd focus on what can we do to reduce our carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where much of my, my attention and energy is, is spent, but it's, um, Probably the most gratifying work I get to, to do is work with students. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I know there have been in many different departments across campus lots of uh, sustainability projects. Um, College of Business has a big sustainability project, obviously engineering. Right. And then you've talked about public health and, and what your students uh, do as well. And now, of course, we've had this whole wonderful evening with art and music. Mm -hmm. uh, people thinking about these things all across campus, maybe not consciously labeling them sustainability, but they're all about a better world, a healthier world, and so on and so forth. Um, what, what do we think are the, the brightest spots? What, are there some things you could point to that you think show success? Well, um, again, thinking locally. Yeah. Tomorrow in Mount Vernon, Iowa, where I live, somebody's going to be there from a group called Monarch Watch. Oh, yeah. uh, monarch butterflies are in a very, very dangerous position. We've lost, they have to make this long migrating route. Climate change is affecting that. Habitat is affecting a lot. So this woman's going to come in and tell us that we can plant, plant things that monarchs like better, and maybe we can help save them. Mm -hmm. And what that does is that gives you something that you can actually do rather than wring your hands. Right. And, um, and here's my anecdote that ties that into how we can put science together with the arts. Mm -hmm. a student of mine, who was a high school student when we used to have a program in the summer, uh, decided not to go to college. Incredibly bright young woman. She went to New York and became a dancer. She's now dancing with monarch butterflies. And, and her YouTube video was good enough that it brought her enough money that she's gone off to Michoacan to do the same kind of thing. And what she tries to say is, what she said to me is that I love science and I found a way that I can use my art and also can save monarchs and then I can 
talk about climate change. Wow. So it's perfect. Perfect, absolutely, wow. <laughs> and, and what about you, uh, Chuck? What do you, what do you think might be some bright spots? Well, actually, it's funny you're, you're mentioning monarchs because I read an article, and I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I shouldn't quote science, but it was about the, the fact of that uh, the effect that weed killers have on milkweed plants in the corn belt is result is a direct is making a direct contribution to the loss of monarch butterflies. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that we can help, but the fact that I was having these impacts on the monarch butterfly on the Gulf of Mexico. So even though we're little Iowa and we're in the middle of the Midwest, we only have three million people, what we do here and how we grow things has a huge impact. So in the midst of that, what can I be hopeful about? Uh, the fact is that there are really some very exciting, what I call creative and innovative communities, smart communities, that are trying to address these issues in a variety of ways. Uh, we have the city of Dubuque, for example, that 25 years ago, nearly one quarter of its population was unemployed. Now it has a very thriving economy. It has a mayor and a city council that have been elected on um, the, uh, a platform of sustainability. And they've made real significant changes and improvements in sustainability in part with, in a partnership with IBM that decided to locate in the city of Dubuque because of the city's commitment to sustainability. We have the city of Charles City that I mentioned earlier uh, that has put, installed 20 blocks of, in, uh, of pervious pavement so that will uh, reduce the amount of, uh, of, of sheet flow of water from the streets into the, uh, into the Cedar River there, thus making it a cleaner river. There are other cities like that as well that are taking it upon themselves to be more creative and innovative places to better protect the environment and better think about ways in which they can develop new industries and new economies some of them based on the arts, like Makokata, for example, that will take these cities well into the 21st century. Yeah, yeah that is exciting. And, and um, for you, Liz, um, here at the university, we mentioned that the College of Public Health is wonderful new building. It's LEED certified, which is terrific. Um, future building, we, we know that there are many buildings being planned now since the terrible ravaging flood uh, cleaned out so many of our spaces here on campus. It gives us one good opportunity to rebuild and build in perhaps a better way. Um, are you involved in those planning projects as we go forward? In some aspects, mm -hmm. I am. There is so much going on right now that I, I can't be involved in everything, of course. But of course, we are building to a very high environmental quality, high uh, environmental standard in our new construction and our major re renovations. And what you'll see in the next several years come online with these new buildings is some really wonderful applications of stormwater management, of green roofs, uh, perhaps even some solar projects. Um, and of course, these buildings are very energy efficient, which is really wonderful. What I think is really remarkable about this campus is that the folks have taken energy conservation very seriously. And as our director of utilities and energy management says, the greenest energy is the energy you never use. <laughs> And so we're, we are very strong in the area of energy conservation. And so as we've been adding these buildings, the Beckwith Boathouse, the new College of Public Health, the new Wellness Center, uh, we've been able through energy conservation methods to offset that growth in energy. So overall, we've been having a reduction in absolute energy use for the past several years, which is really great. Yeah, that is great. 
And you know, I, I've lived my whole life in Iowa, born in Iowa, and I think the landscape here is so beautiful. I know it's a place that all of us want to protect, not, not only in our city life, but rural life too. And you know, connecting this back to the arts, many of you know that a uh, hundred more years ago when Dvorak came to right. the U.S., he spent two summers in our little Spillville, Iowa, wrote the American String Quartet, and one of the themes and one of the movements of that quartet, I'm sure you all know, um, is based on a particular little bird that he heard uh, just outside the window there in our little town. And, you know, it's important to protect Panager, the things that Scarlet Panager, absolutely. And so it's important to protect the places we love, and, um, and I'm hoping it's doable. I, I hope we can leave the evening with, with uh, you know, some good thoughts about the future. And I want to thank you, Liz Christensen, so much. And sure. thank you, Chuck Connerly. And thank you, David Osterberg, for being with us on this program. Uh, that's the final program in our four-part series on climate change and sustainability. And I'm very grateful to all of our guests, our musicians earlier in the, in the uh, program, and everybody who has participated. Thank you so much. And thanks for our audience for coming this afternoon. I hope you can join us next time when our program topic is the language of the brain. I think it'll be a really, really interesting show. So I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you for joining us for World Canvas, and we hope to see you next time. Good night. Thank you.